0: Exodus chapter 20, we've been considering that following Jesus Christ and its connection with God's moral law, the fundamental rights and wrongs that don't change because they reflect what God unchangeably hates or unchangeably loves. What has always displeased God always will displease God and what has always pleased and always will please him. In chapter 20, we read, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Our glorious God, we come to you this morning as believers have had to come since the fall of man. We come needy. We come Aware of what separates us from you is not just that infinite gulf, that chasm between the uncreated source and cause of all and then creation. There's no way for us to measure it, God. How could we describe it to you? How can we even get our little minds around it? That you are the uncaused cause, the uncreated creator, And we are made from the earth. The same kind of stuff that we see all around us has gone into our creation. And you have made us in your image and you breathe life into humanity. So we're not just like animals, but God, our lives, they seem to begin yesterday. They flourish and they end tomorrow. But you Are not like us. You are not like anyone we've ever met before. You are not like anyone we have heard of. You are not even like the imagination throughout the centuries of humanity. And all of its attempts to create little gods that would serve them. You are holy and other. But you have commanded us to come. And we come knowing that we are not pure in ourselves, that we are not strong, that we are not good. But you have given your son as the lamb to wash us. You've given him to us as our mediator, as our representative, to provide a righteousness that we could not provide, to clothe us with all that pleases you. And you have given us your spirit to get out of bed each morning. And every believer, God, we know by experience that though we are still weak, he is infinitely strong and all we need for obedience is presently being supplied. So help us to delight in you, to turn away from all the plastic things that so easily attract us to turn away, even from that false hope of our own goodness and our resolutions. God, you are our life because of Christ. And for us, there is no other God and no other mediator. So we come to worship you this morning. Like the woman who pressed through the crowd, stretched out her hand and grabbed part of Christ's clothing and was healed. We want to do that again and again. We want to stretch out our faith and grab what you say in your word and receive everything we need to know and to love and to do all your good pleasure For your glory. God, we pray for those in our fellowship who have been very sick in these last months. Pray for those who even now are in the hospital for John Didier. We think of uh, Derek and Penny with the cancer. And we're grateful for how you've granted so much mercy there. We pray for Greg Elder and the cancer that he's fighting. God, there are so many that are isolated from worship, from the normal interacting with believers whose lives are painful and it's hard to focus even when they read your Bible. So we pray that you would meet them and in a very unusual way that you would supply what they need to know the truth about themselves and about you and to walk in those truths. We pray that you would speak to us this morning and breathe on the dry bones that are here, those that have preferred to stay at a distance. Call their name. Entice them. God, show them How you are everything they could ever rightly desire. We pray that you would do this across the world as the gospel is preached, as your word is opened up, wherever you find men, women, and children, wherever they are spiritually before your face, God, will you work? May your kingdom spread, may your name be exalted. And may your will be done wholeheartedly, immediately, cheerfully. God, do it, we pray, for the glory of our Lord and Savior, your Son. And it's in his name we ask. Amen. Well, we're coming again to the theme of following Christ. And in following Christ, we're talking about following Christ's teachings and following Christ's example. And I think that, you know, we've done a lot of preparatory work as we've approached, um, you know, what we've called the map of Christ, the, the moral law of God. How did Christ fundamentally relate to the Father and humanity? How did he love God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength? And how did he love people as he loved himself? So we're not talking about following Christ's pattern as Redeemer, Obviously, somehow trying to mimic the externals of his particular task, but we're talking about following Christ in in that core of his humanity, that life that woke up every day and said, "I have not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me," or my I, I must do his will, and I delight to do his will so when we think about those kinds of, uh, that, that kind of path, that task, it may seem daunting, but for the Christian, it's so clear that the New Covenant provides everything you need to do that: a new heart on which the law is written, a new residence, a new nature, where God dwells by His spirit, a new family, the church. But when we talk about following Christ and coming to the Ten Commandments from the right angle, as we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from your darkness and enslavement and your fear. And last week, we talked about being able to look all through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and say, the Lord is my portion. I will, I will set my feet on the path of his precepts. But I think we've come to a place which uh, we need to pause again and consider this question. We know that following Christ means obedience, and I don't think any Christian argues with that. We know that obedience flows from love to God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And the one that loves me will be loved by my father and we will make our a residence in him. I hope that we're pretty clear on that, that nobody is obeying God in order to get him to love you. But it's an expression of gratitude. We love him because he first loved us. The one that was loved much loves much in return the one that has been forgiven much loves much and much love is expressed in much obedience and little love is expressed in little obedience now that's at the heart of all that we've been talking about when we as we've been talking about walking in obedience and i think that we're clear there and probably pretty united but Then we come to, I feel in my own heart, kind of a fork in the road. And both paths say, live for God. Live for God here, live for God there. Right side, left side. Right side, live for God. And the path is paved by God's moral law. These are the things that God is still pleased with. These are the things that God still is displeased with. And like Paul, having been rescued Purely by the grace of God, the undeserved friendship of God, we can say like Paul, our ambition now is to please him. Or I am compelled by his love for me. I am compelled to obey. Or I want to live for him who died for me and was raised. So there's that path. Then the other path that says obey me is has all those statements from Paul. I want to please the Lord. I'm compelled to please the Lord. I I want to live for the God who gave himself for me. But that path is not paved by the moral law. Or maybe the moral law shows up occasionally. In the recent decades, there has been quite a resurgence of, um, we could call it biblical doctrine or reformed thinking. Uh, you know, so suddenly we have churches that are calling themselves reformed or they're reading Puritans or they're being confessional, and the confession they're using is an old confession, and those are all wonderful things, but there has also been, and this happens if you read church history, it happened in the Puritan period, it happened in the Great Awakening, but there is also always a tendency that when the when the bigness of the gospel is once again. Understood more clearly and preached, then antinomianism creeps right in there. Martin Lloyd Jones in the last century preached and said, You know that you are preaching the gospel correctly if people accuse you of being an antinomian. And if you are not accused of sounding like an antinomian, he said, You probably aren't preaching correctly. Well, that was Lloyd-Jones' opinion. Where did he get it from? Well, Romans 6, where Paul is going from town to town, city to city, church to church, and explaining the fullness of the finished work of Christ, our Adam, our mediator, who has brought us out of death into life. We live in a realm of grace where even the sin of the believer, as serious as a believer's sin still is, As wide as its impact may spread, the grace of God far surpasses it, far outspreads it. And in chapter six, of course, Paul has to mention that there are some people who are saying that Paul's going around saying that saved by grace means live any way you want. In fact, just sin, because the more you sin, the more this wave after wave of God's forgiving, comforting, strengthening love will reach you. So I guess it's always going to be that when we return to a God-centered gospel, which I think we could call, you know, kind of reformed teaching, and move away from a man-centered gospel, that one of the unwelcome companions will be antinomianism. And so we have to always guard against that. And here's how I feel it shows up. There is this subtle, unspoken question in our minds. I know that obeying God is good and right and loving and pleasing to him. But because Christ did everything, everything for our justification, isn't obedience optional? I mean, it might be best, like the best life, the the best choice today. But honestly, it's optional, right? Or obedience is not optional, but are we sure that the law, especially the law that Moses wrote down at a time where Mount Sinai was quaking and thundering, aren't we aren't we unsure whether that really is the path it looks so much like old covenant that i wonder if when we read the ten commandments we say you know that's wonderful and uh, that's that's a great option a lot of times this shows up when a specific command comes to bear on the life of the believer And the believer feels the weight of that, and you begin to realize that perhaps you haven't been very careful in that area, and you feel convicted, and you have the choice either of repenting and believing that, you know, turning away from and turning toward the king to receive what you need, to understand and to love and to do his will. You have that choice, or you have the choice of saying, well, actually, I read that Dr. So-and-so and and the this person, this author over here, or this pastor of this megachurch, or or maybe a pastor of a tiny reformed church said that uh actually that doesn't apply to us. Many times through the years at Christ Church, people have come and said, Well, that bothers me, but I read a book recently published that told me I shouldn't be bothered by it, so I'm okay now. And they continued to follow that path and continued to drift. Is obedience optional for the Christian? Is the moral law of God optional? Okay, obey, follow Jesus, but do the best you can with a heart full of love toward him But the moral law is an option. Now, I think one reason, of course, that that question lurks in our mind, and I want to answer that question so that looking at the Ten Commandments won't be to us like one of many wonderful options. One reason that that comes up is that the New Testament, especially as you read through the epistles, where the apostles are writing to baby Christians in new churches, and they go to explain the Old Testament, and they talk about the law, and they say some things about the law that are gloomy, you know, only gloomy, it seems. And if you read quickly through and don't think about the context, so why would they say that? What was the problem they were addressing? What do they mean by these words? As you read through, even though you know obedience to God is the right thing, perhaps you're not so convinced that, that the Ten Commandments, the summary of the moral law, is really an essential part of that. Let me read a couple of those passages to you. In Romans 3, verse 19, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh, no human, will be justified In God's sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin but now apart from the law okay laws put it put that away apart from the law the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe so that certainly is a passage where it seems to say, well, the law can show you sin, but it's not very helpful. After that, so we have faith or we have law. Romans 6, verse 14. For sin, Paul says to the Christian, for sin shall not be master over you. You can't go back to being in its realm where it dominates you. Not saying a Christian can't sin, but it will not be your master again like it once was. Why? And then he says this strange thing, for you are not under law, but under grace. So when you read that quickly, don't you come away with this understanding? To be under the law still, to be under the Ten Commandments perhaps, that that will always result in me being a slave to sin. But to be out from under the law and to be under grace, well, that means I I won't be a slave to sin. Romans 7, verse 5 and 6, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So there's the law again. What's it doing? It's stirring up our selfishness and sinfulness. And it's bringing forth more sin and death. Verse 6, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit, not oldness of the letter. So again, a contrast. Once bound by law, now free in Christ. Once a slave of the letter, now a servant of the Spirit. Newness. Who would read that and think, you know, I think we ought to spend a lot of time focusing on the moral law. Galatians 5, Paul says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Christ set you free. And he's talking to people dealing with Judaism and or we call them the Judaizers So, Jews are coming into the church and saying, Wow, you have Jesus. Now you need the law. Now you need that old covenant. Put them together and you really got the package. And Paul says, Christ set you free from that. Do not go back. Philippians 3, verse 9. After the first eight verses, where Paul talks about all that he had as a Jew, all of his goodness, all of his privileges, all of his zeal, all of this squeaky clean, squeaky queen, squeaky clean life by the old covenant and all those laws, then in verse 9 he says this. He said, he counts all that loss so that he may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, I don't think anybody could read those quickly, especially out of context, without having a question mark in their mind saying, okay, why does the law, the Ten Commandments, why does that moral law have anything to do with me now that I'm in Christ? So before we go to the moral law, I want us to answer that question and I think there are a couple of things we can do. One, we can look at the place of the moral law in the big picture of God's plan. Where does the moral law start? Where does it end? Look at the timing of the moral law. Also, not just the timing, but look at it as a tool in the hand of God. What does God do with the moral law? And if you can see what God has been doing with the moral law, it may help us looking at how it fits into the big plan, its timing, its tool, it's a tool in the hand of God. It may help us to understand how does that affect the Christian? Where do we plug into that? In the next, we're going to look at that today. And then in the coming weeks, we're going to look at some of those key passages where Paul has to speak disparagingly about the law where he says those gloomy things we need to go look at those and ask ourselves why and what is he really talking about is he talking about the ten commandments is he talking about the ceremonial law the civil law what's he saying why does he say it this way so we'll go and look at a few of those so as to clarify in our minds is obedience to christ does it always include the moral law Or is that just one of the wonderful options that we have? Now, even before we look at the big picture, let's be clear. The existence of the moral law, okay? Again, moral law. I'm going to say that a thousand times. The moral law. We're talking about that law that is summarized in the Ten Commandments. It is the basic list of right and wrong. And these are things that are right because of who God is. And they're wrong because who God is. They're not based on our circumstances or when we live or what covenant we're in. They are always the same list. God, for example, always hates idolatry. God always loves when we worship him in the right way. God always hates it when we dishonor our parents and God always hates adultery and God always hates murder and theft and dishonesty and coveting. But God always loves that we would, from in the right way, honor our parents or that we would protect life, etc. So these unchanging things, we're not talking about the ceremonies. We're not even talking about the application of the moral law to the specific National situation of Israel. All right? Those things shift. The moral law does not. One way we see that is that the moral law, the summary of it, the Ten Commandments, is the only thing that was written in stone, and that stone was placed in the Ark of the Covenant, and above it was the mercy seat. Well, the moral law, the basic right and wrong. The Ten Commandments and their applications, the specific applications, which there are so many in the Old Testament, they do show up in the teaching of the New Testament. So while many, many times Jesus or Paul or the other disciples or the apostles, the writers of the New Testament, have to say to the new churches, the ceremonial laws which were pointing you to Christ, now that Christ has come, They are now obsolete. They were designed to be obsolete. And you would not be benefited by trying to hang on to those or to go back to those. In fact, if you try to go back to those and you think that they plus Jesus will fix you, you have no hope. So we hear that a lot. Don't go back to the old food laws. Don't go back to the old ceremonies. You have the fulfillment of that has come. So the shadow is no longer necessary. But never in the New Testament do we hear Christ or the apostles say this. The moral law of God, that unchanging code that explains what pleases or displeases our God, that's based in his perfection, you don't have to pay attention to that at all. In fact, if you try to pay attention to that, you're without hope. Let me give you just a few examples of how often it shows up in the New Testament. And I've had to just grab a few because we have a lot to cover this morning. And you're gonna have to put your thinking cap on and think of this more as a classroom, all right, than the pulpit today. Sermon on the Mount, where Christ restates the moral law, peels off all the layers of, You know, tradition that the Jews have placed on it, so it's clear, and then magnifies it to show how deep it goes, all the way to the motives, how wide it spreads. Matthew 5, verse 21, the sixth, go ahead and turn with me, if you would, to Matthew. Matthew 5, verse 21, the sixth commandment is mentioned that we are not to murder. Verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. All right? And then what Christ goes on to say is not, that's an old hat. That's back then. But rather, do you understand how deeply that penetrates? Do you understand all that's included in that? So the sixth commandment is mentioned in verse 21, Matthew 5, verse 27. The seventh commandment is mentioned. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And then Christ expands that. In verse 31, Paul, uh, sorry, Christ applies an application of the Ten Commandments that comes up in Deuteronomy 24 when it talks about divorce. So in verse 31, it says, it was said whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 24, and Christ is going to say, yes, that is the law of God, but have you understood what that really means? In verse 33, Christ again applies uh, not just the fourth commandment about taking his name in vain, but honesty and taking oaths and then not performing them. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 23 and he quotes from Leviticus 19. Look at verse 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. And the places where he quotes people are making vows by the name of God and not doing them and dishonoring the name of God. In verse 38, he talks about right punishment, not being extreme. And again, he quotes from Deuteronomy 19. He also quotes from Exodus 21, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. All right, if someone hurts you in one way, you are not to be extreme in the repayment. Then all the way over in chapter 15, just give you one more. Verse 4, Matthew 15, 4, the Pharisees are rebuked by Christ for misusing the law They're talking about the fifth commandment here, honor your parents, honor your father and mother, and and they're using that as an excuse for not financially providing for their parents because they say, we need to keep all of our money and dedicate it toward the work of God and so you don't get anything. But it's not just the teaching of Jesus, and I've just given you a few selections, but the apostles, and I'm not going to have you read them all, but... In Ephesians 4, verse 25, the ninth commandment is applied. In Ephesians 4, verse 28, the eighth commandment. In Ephesians 5, verse 5, the first commandment and the second commandment and the tenth commandment are applied. If you jump over to Romans 13, verse 9, the fifth commandment, sixth commandment, seventh commandment, and eighth commandment are applied. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul even applies one of those applications of the commandments, one of those specific ways of talking Where he says, You remember that God commanded that when when we put an ox to tread, you know, to to tread the corn and the grain, that you're not to muzzle the ox. You you gotta let the ox eat a little bit of it so that he can do what he's supposed to do. And Paul says, Well, God's really not all that worried about ox. He's really talking about other things and he applies it to Timothy. Timothy should be paid. You can't have Timothy laboring and laboring and laboring, and then you don't provide for him. So again, New Testament, full of those statements, yet we have those statements that I just read earlier where the law just seems to be something you don't want to be under, that you want to be away from, that you don't want to be following, you don't want to be hoping in. So how do we understand the big picture how the law fits in God's big picture and how God is using it all through the ages. And I think that will help us approach the passages next week as well. So let me give you the big picture. Let's think of the timing. When did the law, when did the moral law come to be? Well, the moral law has always been, even before there were people who needed to be ruled by a moral law. That is, if the moral law is the expression of God's perfect holiness, his his moral straightness, you know, the plumb line. If God has always hated idolatry or adultery or theft, you know, or deceit, then if God has always been this way, then that moral code, that fundamental right and wrong has always existed. And will always exist but when was it given to man and well we find that at creation God makes all this world God makes Adam and Eve and God makes animal life and we are in a sense part of the you know scientifically we're part of the category animal life I mean we're not leaves and branches and pieces of grass and you're not mineral so we're animal but we're different from the animals because God breathed life into Adam and gave Adam a soul and gave Adam, uh, created Adam and Eve in God's image so that there is something about humanity that can respond to the creator in a way that no dog or cat or tree or planet could ever do. So we're spiritual beings. And in being created in the likeness of God, we have that soul, and in our heart, there is a conscience, and animals don't have a conscience. Now, I know, I, I think my dog has a conscience, because when I walk out of the house and I see something chewed to pieces, you know, the newest shipment from UPS, that happy truck that lands right there, and it drops a book in my yard, and then my dog eats the book, and I look at the book in pieces, and I look at the dog, and the, the dog Does that, you know? Does my dog have a conscience? Or has my dog been trained to know that when she eats my book, I'm going to attempt to kill it, you know? And I'm chasing it and yelling at it and and scolding it. Humanity has a conscience. What is a conscience? Your conscience is not the moral law. Your conscience is a God-given spiritual witness within you that there is a moral law and that you and all your choices and thoughts and responses, no matter what the situation, all of those are accountable to this moral law. So the conscience lets me know there are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong. And no matter what I say, I've got to deal with that idea of right and wrong. So when Adam and Eve existed before sin, that conscience was perfect and their awareness of what pleased God and displeased God was unclouded. But after sin, what happened to the image of God? We are still creatures with spirit and soul but now the conscience is clouded and the image of God in us is warped and bent. It's not completely lost. You're still not like a dog or a cat. You still have a soul that has to respond to its creator. But one way it was described, I think it was John Flavel, the Puritan said, what once burned the mind, the conscience of humanity, what once burned like a brilliant, bright torch, Sin being invited into the room, it has been reduced to a smoldering stub of a little candle. Conscience exists in everybody, but it's not a safe guide. A conscience can be very mistaken. I think C.S. Lewis gives a great argument in his book, Mere Christianity, which has a lot of weaknesses One time I I gave that book to someone years ago and then realized after I gave it away that I hadn't read all the way through it and toward the end it really gets wonky, all right? So it's like I want to just rip the book in half and give him the first half because it's a great first half. But Lewis argues with the intellectuals of his day that there is, man has a soul and there is a right and wrong and we know that because we have a conscience. We feel that there are some things that are right and some things are wrong. And the intellectuals of his day said, well, that's because of the way we've been trained to think, you know, what, what we call herd instinct. If everybody you know, like a, like a herd of cattle, walks this way and nobody walks that way, then, well, you just naturally think, well, this is the right way, whether it's right or not. So you've just been conditioned by your, by your environment. And Lewis gives a number of examples, which I won't take the time to give you, of people going against What the herd instinct says is, well, this is just fine. And they go against it because of their conscience being bothered. How do we know that this really is true? Romans chapter 2. Paul's describing people who know right and wrong. And sometimes they do right because they know it's right to do right. Even though they're not religious and they've never read Moses' Ten Commandments. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, the written law, do instinctively the things of the law, not having the law, they are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Now, he's not saying they're saved. He's talking about a conscience. He goes on to say this. Their conscience bearing witness to. And their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. And that's all conscience can do. The conscience is a witness that, as best as it understands, it yells at you. That's the right thing. And when you do something else, that was the wrong thing. Conscience isn't a trustworthy guide, and it cannot fix you. Now... The fact that people know there is a right and wrong, Paul says, is evidence that they know a law exists, even though they never read that law. I mean, you know, the people that worshipped the Roman god Jupiter did not have an Old Testament with the Ten Commandments in it, but they know something's wrong about murder. Something's wrong about theft. Something's wrong about deceit. And their conscience is a witness to that. So the moral law, it came before Moses. We also see this in Romans 5. Paul makes the argument in verses 12 and 13 and 14. He makes the argument that sin cannot exist unless there's a law that exists. And so that's just a universal principle. You don't have to be a Christian to understand that. You can't be accused of breaking a law if there isn't a law. So let's say there were no laws regarding, um, you know, how we drive our cars. All right. So no laws for travel. And you drive at 150 miles an hour. Nobody can pull you over and say you broke the law because you say "Uh, we have no law. So I can't be a lawbreaker, So I can't be in trouble. So I shouldn't feel bad. Paul just makes that basic statement. Sin is breaking a law. If there's no law, you can't sin. Sin brings the wages of death. If there is no law, then you can't break a law. And if there's no rule that God gives, then there is no sin possible And if there is no sin, there should be no death. And then he points us back to Genesis all the way up to Moses. From Genesis 4 to Exodus 20, there is no written Ten Commandments. But there there is a lot of death. Now he's that's just one, that's kind of just a thing he mentions. in in his bigger explanation. Adam sinned and he polluted his whole race. I mean, we're all born sinners. We didn't sin just like Adam. Nobody but Adam and Eve sinned just like Adam and Eve. So we're not saying we broke a covenant of works and we ate from the forbidden tree. We didn't do that. We did other things, but we broke laws. And that's why we earned death ourselves on top of what Adam has done for us. Now, what law was there? Well, there wasn't the Ten Commandments, but there was the moral law. When Cain killed Abel, did he go home after killing Abel and think, well, that was a good thing I did. And then he gets out his Old Testament for his daily Bible reading and he comes across the Ten Commandments and says, oh, no, I broke it. I broke the commandment. I wasn't supposed to kill people, but I just killed them. Now I'm in trouble because all my neighbors have the Ten Commandments, you know, a little poster in their kitchen. And now when I walk outside, they're going to look at me and say, you broke the commandment. So I'm going to be in trouble with my neighbors, and I'm going to be in trouble with God. Now, Cain definitely knows he's in trouble with God. And Cain knows he will be in trouble with every person around him because Cain knows that he was not supposed to murder. And Cain knows that everyone who lives around him knows you were not supposed to murder your brother. They didn't have the Ten Commandments, but they had the awareness that that there are right things and wrong things, and that is one of the wrong things. The moral law existed before Moses wrote it down. If you want further proof, you can just take your Bibles this afternoon and starting in Genesis 4, just read through Exodus 19 and mark down every place that someone made a choice that displeased God or pleased God and ask yourself, how are they to know that pleased or displeased? How can God be pleased or displeased with anything they do? If there is no moral law, if there is not a fundamental right and wrong, long before there were two tablets and a Ten Commandments. Now, why make all that point? Because many people argue that we are not interested in God's moral law because that was just a thing that came with Moses. But I hope you can see that the fundamental rights. And wrongs, which the Ten Commandments sums up, they existed long before Moses. They're bigger than Moses and Sinai. And they don't get set aside just because we're in the new covenant. Well, let me, let me move on to the next. If we keep thinking about time, how do you understand the, the writing down of the moral law in the time of Moses. How does that fit in with your understanding of what God is doing, the big plan, right? So we understand that God has revealed his great, gracious promises, his, his intention to rescue sinners through his son. We know that God has revealed that little by little, more and more throughout the ages through covenants. So Adam and Eve have failed, and as God is about to pronounce judgment on humanity, He tells them that He himself will send a rescuer that will rescue humanity, that they have doomed. Adam's sins, and all of his rep- all those he represents have been impacted by it. We, we are those people, but God will send another. And through his righteous activity, Paul says in Romans 5, everyone who gives themselves to him, everyone who's represented by Christ will be impacted by Christ's righteousness. Through one man and his terrible disobedience, sin and death came to humanity. And through another individual man, the last Adam, and through his perfect obedience, not just the cross, but his entire life, righteousness, and life come to everyone who belonged to him. Now, God makes this wonderful promise, and then what happens throughout the Old Testament is that we see other covenants, other contracts or agreements. God always initiates the covenant, not man. God always chooses the person he's going to initiate with. God chooses the The stipulations of the covenant, what's required, what they're to do, what they're not to do, and God chooses the rewards and the negative consequences, the curses. But if you look at those covenants, do you remember we did this a couple of years ago? When you look at those covenants, what what one old Puritan, here's how he divided it up. And this has become, I think, my favorite way of thinking of it. Those Old Testament covenants, they're all under that Old Testament. They're gracious. God's dealing with sinful people in each of these. So they're, they're part of the unfolding of an everlasting covenant of grace. But until Christ comes, these covenants that God makes, you know, with Noah, with Abraham, with, um, through Moses, through David, these covenants are covenants of promise. Each one of them includes the hope of what Christ will do. And when you come to the New Testament and Christ accomplishes what he was sent to do in covenant with the Father, that's not a covenant of promise anymore. It's a covenant of provision. It's been accomplished. It's here. So we're no longer just looking forward, but we actually have. Now, Still got your thinking caps on. Have I lost you? You're gone now. Is it lunchtime? Are you gone? Are you gone? The most significant Old Testament expression of covenant of promise when we're thinking about our salvation is clearly the Abrahamic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, God picks a pagan who was born in a pagan family and lived in a pagan town. It is a pure expression of undeserved friendship. Abraham did not live a great life and then God decided to pick him because he was the best. So God chooses Abraham and he enters into a covenant with him and it shows up in more than one place in Genesis, but I'll sum it up for us here. I will be your God. I will be your reward. You will be mine. I will make a great people from you You don't have any kids, but you're going to have a kid. And from you is going to come a people that nobody could number. Okay, this people, they will be my people. And I will be their God. And I will also give them a land to live in. And from this people will come a king. Now that's spelled out much more clearly when he speaks to David. There will come a king, and these people will enjoy all these privileges if they walk obediently with me. But if these people, unlike Abraham, if these people demonstrate they don't really believe, because not every Jew was a believer, and they demonstrate that by disobeying me and worshiping other gods, I'll remove them from the land, and they'll lose their privileges. Abrahamic Covenant. And at the heart of that, Paul says, is this. Galatians 3 says, God spoke about the seed of Abraham and he made promises to the seed of Abraham and promises to us regarding the seed and the seed of Abraham or the offspring of Abraham. It's not plural, all the Jews, it's one Jew. It's the Messiah and through him, all the world will be wonderfully impacted. So that's promise made. Faith, like Abraham's, is the way his people would receive a righteousness from God, like he did. And that's made more clear in the Davidic covenant and finally in the the New Testament, the New Covenant. Now, right in the middle of those, we have this Mosaic covenant. And it sure looks like it's not all about faith. It looks like it's all about the rules and the rituals. So if we're not careful, you kind of think this. Garden of Eden, God says all these wonderful things about a coming, or well, it gives a hint, about you know the coming of a redeemer who will come through Eve. He'll be a human. Then, you know, Noah, I will not let this world be destroyed by sin until I carry out my promises of mercy. And Abraham, what? Abraham, I will send a rescuer through your family. It's not just human. He's going to be a Jew, and he's not just going to rescue Jews. He's going to rescue people from all around the world. And then David, he's not just a Jew. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's not just from Judah. He's from your family. He will rule forever on a throne that never ends, and he will build a temple for me that never ends." And then finally, we come to Christ. So there's this trajectory of promises. And then you get to Moses, and it's like, man, we're, we're back to legalism. Rule, 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 rule. Next chapter, rule, 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 rule. How do you understand God giving the law to Israel through Moses? How does that fit in the plan? I think the simplest way of stating it is this. It is a clarification. It's an expansion on what God had already said to Abraham. And it will be further expanded as we go through the Old Testament in those two great things. First, if we're to be believers and receive a righteousness from God through faith alone, like Abraham, and not through works, what are we believing in? Well, the seed, the, the coming one. Okay, but I mean, what exactly? And the Old Testament Mosaic law gives them hundreds and, you know, thousands of little details that are part of their worship and their sacrifices and their priests and all of these are filling out the picture of the person and the work of the seed of Abraham. He will be the Lamb of God. He will wash your souls. But also, in the covenant with Abraham, the command to walk obediently with God in order to enjoy all of that, that is expanded under Moses. Well, we're supposed to obey this God, okay? Great. What do we do? We're out of Egypt. It's four centuries later. We're about to be a nation for the first time. We're going to have our own land. We're going to get to rule ourselves. We're our own thing now. How does God want us to act individually in families, marriages, with kids, with parents, with neighbors? How is the civil law going to look? How is the nation supposed to act? And that is so clearly spelled out also through Moses. When Moses writes down all these details, he is giving Israel that needs it now because they're about to be their own nation. He is giving them an expansion of what it is there to hope in the work of the Messiah and of how they walk with their god. If you think that well what Moses did was gave them he gave them a new way to be right with god. So Abraham's justified by faith in god. But now if you're with Moses you have to be justified by works, by law-keeping. Then you've totally misunderstood it. Nobody has ever been justified by law-keeping unless you're thinking of the law-keeping of Jesus. Remember the introduction to the 10 commandments. I'm the Lord your God. That's already in place. I rescued you. That's already happened. There is this love that's already toward these people. And then, this is how you walk with me. Paul makes the argument in Galatians 3, verse 15, 16, 17, and 18. And what he says is, let me just read your verse 17 and 18. What I'm saying is this, Paul says, the law, which came 430 years later than the promise made to Abraham, that he would be right through faith and that his people would be a covenant people. 430 years later, a law is given. This law, Paul says, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. What was Abraham's inheritance? Righteousness. Justification with God. How did he receive it? Faith. In what God said. Now, how did Moses, how did he get right with God? Faith in what God would do which was promised to Abraham and every Jew that believed was right with God justified made right with God through the coming work of Christ received by faith Paul makes it clear 430 years before Mount Sinai God made a covenant and ratified it 430 years later Moses has given all these specific laws for the people that did not overturn what was already there. A covenant made with Abraham, a covenant that explained that the inheritance of righteousness comes through a promise received by faith, not through obedience to a certain set of rules. what does this mean for them and for us and i think this is as far as we'll get today when moses wrote down all those moral commands and ceremonial commands and then the application of the moral commands in all those civil laws sinai was not a blip in in the in the plan of god so things weren't going along the road of grace and promise and suddenly we have this blank spot, you know. And in this blank spot, there's laws and make yourself right with God by laws. And then it picks back up later with David and it's back to, you know, salvation through the finished work of the coming king received by faith. Mount Sinai is not an interruption in grace, The giving of the law at Sinai was gracious. It is as gracious as the explanation of the coming of a king. The moral law is as much used by God in a gospel way as we see it showing up in human history. It's used in a gospel way by God as much as the word faith or repentance. Sinai is written to explain more about the coming seed of Abraham and what we are to be hoping in. What will he do? And it explains the character of the God that they belong to in a wonderful relationship. And what does that character mean when it comes to living with him? What does obedience look like? What does faith look like? Now, what about the law today? Well, we know that God uses the law, and this is where we'll just throw it in the summary statement. God has always been using the law and is still using the law to do what? To show us the happiest path of obedience, Psalm 119, the blessed life. But we in our sin reject that, and so the law doesn't change But now that we approach it from a different angle, it it looks like an enemy. It's angry and it exposes sin so that we don't just go around thinking, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm doing pretty good. No, the law shows you how imperfect you are. It's like the microscope, you know, that goes to your pillowcase and you say, that's a pretty clean pillowcase. I mean, I've only been, I mean, like boys, you know, like we never change a pillowcase. So, so, I mean, doesn't look dirty to me. And then someone puts a microscope on there and then. The bacteria jungle on your pillow, and you think, Ah, I didn't know there was all that. I'm sleeping in that? Well, yeah. And the law comes and you say, I'm pretty good. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm I'm better than those people, or I'm doing really well over here, so that probably balances it out. And then God shines the law in your soul, and you think, God, I I had no idea. I get calls late at night, I have in the past, from church attenders who say, I thought. I was a sinner and I knew I wasn't perfect, but I never knew that there is sin in every single thing I do. What hope is there for me? Even your best stuff. The law shines on your religion. I remember that how God led Misty to Christ was to show her that even her prayers were mixed with sin. So if if her best thing she gives God was imperfect, then what hope was it? that her worst was going to pass muster. God exposes it, and he condemns it through his law. The law offers you not one ounce of mercy. It does not offer you the opportunity to repent. That is not what the law does. It only shows you what's right and wrong and it, and it rewards what's right and it condemns what's wrong. Repentance is a gospel word through Christ. And the law then, of course, through doing that, it, it leads us to Christ, Paul says in Galatians 3. And it has been doing that for, for thousands of years. It's been leading a person that sees that they're not right. It leads them to the only one who is right, the lawmaker, who is the law keeper, who is also the one who is the lamb of the law, who will die for them or has died for them. And his sacrifice will wash them. And his obedience will clothe them. And the law restrains sin. And it has always been used that way. So we see this is wrong. I don't want to step across that line. And we can take that to the world. And in a way that is in harmony with the merciful way we've been approached. We speak the truth in love. And we say to them, you are going down." a path of death. And it's not just my opinion or what my parents told me or what my grandparents said or what part of the world I'm from. It's our creator that said it. So the law is still being used by God in such a gracious way. What about at the end of time? Read Romans. Go to a Computer uh, program that you know gives you a concordance, does a word search, or use your old strong's concordance. Look up the word deed or deeds. You will find so many occurrences of that word, especially in the letters to the churches, where Christ looks at them and says, I know your what? Your deeds, your deeds, your deeds, your deeds. It shows up so often. And then when it comes to the judgment. They are judged according to their deeds. Are we saying that we're saved by grace right now through faith, but in the end we have, to, we have to have enough good deeds and then we get through the judgment? Not at all. We also have wonderful pictures in Revelation where it says that the saints, you know, come before God and they are given whitewashed robes. It's not law righteousness that makes me right with God at the judgment, but Matthew 16 says it. There will be, though the law will never condemn the person who is in Christ because Christ has satisfied the law for you. The law will be the measuring stick for right and wrong behavior. And there will be rewards for the believer and rebukes. And that will be based on what you did that was right or what you did that was wrong. And that, at the heart of that, is that unchanging moral law that reflects what God has always loved and always hated. So when we think about the law, do not think, okay, the law that came when Moses came to Sinai and it left When Jesus went to the cross, the moral law has always been and will always be. In heaven or in the new creation, it's not like we'll have the Ten Commandments listed in front of us. The believer will be made perfect. The substance of the moral law will still be there. We will still love God and only God, and we will still have no no taste for sin, and we will not choose to rebel against him. We will love what he loves and hates what he loves perfectly. The substance of the moral law will still exist. Right will still be right and wrong will still be wrong. You just won't need the law to command you or to guide you because you will be made perfect. In the next week or two, we'll go back and we will look at Galatians and Romans and we'll see why does Paul speak about the law in this certain way? And are we right in thinking that the Ten Commandments are not optional if we're to live for our God in a way that pleases him? But if we can see that, then we will finish with a passage from Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul spells out the dynamic. Okay, now you're in Christ, and every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ, Christian. And then he says, so we put off the old life, we are transformed, and we put on the new life, put on Christ, and the new behavior. And he he explains how that works, and we'll look at that. So I hope that by the end, every believer will be able to say, God's law is good, like Paul says, it's holy and perfect. And it's become our friend to point us to, a, to the life that pleases the Lord and is the happiest life for the Christian. But in Christ, I see how I can walk on that path. And then we can say with the psalmist, I will walk in perfect liberty, for I seek my Lord's precepts. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass.